This week on the Q&A podcast, historian Richard Streiner talks about his book, Ike in Love and War. It focuses on the personal life and career of Dwight D. Eisenhower, covering everything from his upbringing in military service to his two terms as president of the United States. Mr. Streiner also talks about the three women President Eisenhower fell in love with over his lifetime, Gladys Harding, Mamie Dowd, and Kay Summersby, a Brit who served as President Eisenhower's driver during World War II. Stay tuned, more after this. Against the dark background of the atomic bomb, the United States does not wish merely to present strength, but also the desire and the hope for peace. The coming months will be fraught with fateful decisions. In this assembly, in the capitals and military headquarters of the world, in the hearts of men everywhere, be they governed or governs, governors, may they be the decisions which will lead this world out of fear and into peace. To the making of these fateful decisions, the United States pledges before you, and therefore before the world, its determination to help solve the fearful atomic dilemma, to devote its entire heart and mind to find the way by which the miraculous inventiveness of man shall not be dedicated to his death, but consecrated to his life. Richard Streiner, that's uh, Dwight Eisenhower, in a 1953 speech at the UN about an issue that dominated much of his presidency, and that is the future of nuclear weapons. You have a new book out about him called Ike in Love and War. There have been many treatments, biographies of Eisenhower over the years. What's different about yours? What did you want to do? I wanted to do several things. Um, I wanted to write a uh, comprehensive uh, story of his life. I wanted to uh, explain a lot of the remarkable behind-the-scenes achievements during his presidency, many of which have only emerged uh, over uh, the past several decades uh, because he kept them carefully hidden. But as I got into the book, more and more I found myself captivated Uh, by the story of his emotional development. I learned a lot about that as I went along, and as I went along, I found that my book was telling, among other things, a tale of tragic love. Well, the diaries of Dwight Eisenhower, you say, were a major source for you. What kind of a diarist was he, and was he a reliable uh, conservator of his thinking, or was he writing for history? Well, that's a very interesting question. Uh, Eisenhower um, had a very uh, strategic mind. Emotional though he was, he was uh, extremely calculating. Uh, He spoke and wrote for effect. And his diary in particular uh, is mysterious to me uh, because there were several occasions when I thought he was uh, writing, well, writing what might have been bogus entries in the diary uh, for the purpose of creating a misleading impression in the minds of those who read it. I can't prove it, but circumstantial evidence leads me to suspect it. At the end of the book, I'm going to jump to your conclusions after all the work that you did on him. This is what you wrote. He was a strange man. So likable in many respects, but selfish at times and so distant. A man of many moods. The power of analysis was formidable. 
The emotions that drove him were mysterious. He could be honest and deeply deceptive. One of the themes throughout your book is his temper. And it's so a contrast with what he presented to himself as a politician uh, and perhaps even the, the steadfastness he had during the war. Uh, talk about his temper and how it really uh, affected him and the way he, the way he worked. It was one of the greatest emotional challenges of his life. He did have a terrible temper. Uh, he admitted it uh, both in private and in public, uh, most of all in a series of remarkable interviews after his presidency with uh, CBS anchorman Walter Cronkite. He explained that in the course of his presidency, he would uh, go through a calculated ritual. He would invite White House aides into the Oval Office, and they knew that their duty was to stand in silence as he cursed the blue streak. Then they would leave and not mention it again until he thanked them later. It was a, a purgation uh, that he needed. He needed to vent. He inherited this terrible temper in all likelihood from his father, David, who also had a terrible temper. And Ike's remarkable mother, Ida, taught him early on uh, to practice the fine art of emotional self-control, and he would struggle all his life to do that. Two phrases always associated with Eisenhower's presidency. One is the hidden hand, and the other is middle way politics. I'm going to ask you to explain both of them as we kind of get into this topic. First, the hidden hand. Well, uh, hidden hand was a phrase coined by a political scientist named Fred Greenstein in a book on Eisenhower statecraft that was published in 1982, The Hidden Hand Presidency. Uh, Greenstein's book was uh, a revelation uh, to a great many people, uh, to historical scholars, uh, to oh, uh, a lot of uh, people, including ardent Adlai Stevenson liberals who for years uh, had perceived Ike as an out-of-touch old duffer who was long since past his prime. Uh, Greenstein revealed that Eisenhower was creating that impression deliberately uh, to create maneuvering room for himself. Uh, he was willing at times to, if you will, play the fool uh, in order to create maneuvering room. Now, that's an extraordinary thing for any politician to do. Um, the only thing close to it uh, that I have seen in my study of the presidency was the way Lincoln... Uh, interacted with the abolitionists during the Civil War in private, he actually encouraged some of them to trash his own reputation. He said, I can, I can use that, the pressure that will create. Can you imagine any politician encouraging his allies to diminish his own reputation for strategic and tactical effect? Anyway, Greenstein's book laid out a compelling case uh, for Eisenhower, the strategic maneuverer, and the deceptive methods he used. And it uh, prompted a great deal of further scholarship, principally by uh, Kansas historian David Nichols, who explored Eisenhower's behind-the-scenes war against Joe McCarthy, who explored Eisenhower's behind-the-scenes moves on behalf of civil rights. Um, very interesting story. Now, as to the middle way, uh, I have been interested in the uh, tradition of centrism in American politics for a long time. Uh, in 2010, I wrote a book about it called Lincoln's Way. Uh, my own political ideological tendencies uh, tend in that direction. Uh, I'm not advocating uh, wishy-washy 
quote, moderation, unquote. I admire decisive action when needed. It's just that I am uh, an independent thinker, and Eisenhower was too. Uh, I find myself often repelled by what seems to me the elements of folly that can crop up on the left or right. I reserve to myself the right to uh, steer my own course and to borrow whatever elements of wisdom may emanate from the left or the right. And Eisenhower's presidency, Eisenhower himself became an exemplar of that kind of statecraft. One of the things I seek to do in this book is to explore his ideological development because his thinking in matters political and ideological traversed a rather twisty course. He veered back and forth, and one of the most interesting things of all to me uh, was the way his intellectual and ideological development related to his underlying emotional development. It is one seamless mental continuum uh, and I do think I've broken some new ground in that respect. You uh, reference your career and uh, previous books. How many books is this for you? Oh, dear. Uh, I've written over a dozen, uh, some, uh, in my judgment, more <laughs> significant than others. I think this is probably number 15. Uh, I've written on all sorts of things. Uh, don't want to talk too much about myself, but I chose the profession of history uh, for the potential freedom it could give to study many different subjects and do interdisciplinary work. So I've written about economics, I've written about architecture, I've written about film, I've written about presidential history, and I've had a wonderful time doing it. You've also were involved with the Eisenhower uh, Memorial Commission that uh, developed the memorial that's just a couple of blocks from C-SPAN's office here. What did you do for them? Well, that was an extremely interesting uh, tour of duty, if you will. Um, as a small-town college professor, I needed to supplement my income. Living in Annapolis, I was in good striking distance of uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, I sought part-time uh, writing and consulting jobs. And uh, in the course of that, I was introduced to a most remarkable man, um, Brigadier General Carl Riddell, an Air Force general with a Ph.D. in history, Quite remarkable. Uh, he was the executive director of the Dwight D. Eisenhower Memorial Commission. Congress voted in 99 to build a memorial to Ike. Uh, it took over 20 years to do uh, for lots of reasons. But uh, in my work with Carl Riddell for the commission, I learned a tremendous amount about Eisenhower that I hadn't known before. And uh, after a biography of Lincoln that uh, hit the shelves in 2020, <laughs> worst of all possible years to publish anything with COVID, uh, I decided I, uh, I enjoyed my first venture in biography, the Lincoln book. I decided I liked uh, biographical work very much, uh, so it was time to do a book on Eisenhower. So let's uh, jump into his biography. You referenced his mother and father and the influences that they had. Where was he born and raised? He was born in Denison, Texas, uh, but the town in which he was raised and grew up was Abilene, Kansas. And you uh, talked about his father's temper, which he might have inherited. His mother, as you tell in the book, remained an influence uh, throughout his life. In what ways? Well, uh, it's a remarkable story. Um, uh, both of his parents parents belonged to a, uh, a German Protestant sect called the River Brethren, 
an offshoot of the Mennonites. Like the Amish, they were committed pacifists, both of them, uh, his parents, David and Ida. Um, his father, David, was a very sorry role model. He was a very hard man to love. He was a fierce disciplinarian, moody, withdrawn, uh, whereas Eisenhower's mother was completely the opposite, one of these strange cases of opposites attracting. Uh, she was witty, uh, sparkling, good-humored. Uh, Ike worshipped her uh, into his old age. But growing up that way, uh, uh, he... <laughs> didn't want to become a mama's boy, he began looking around for father substitutes in Abilene, and he found a whole series of men who taught him the rugged, manly arts, including how to shoot. Uh, now, uh, 20 years before Ike's birth in 1890, Abilene had been the epicenter of the Wild West. It was a very, very violent, dangerous town, and only the action of lawmen like Wild Bill Hickok made it a safe place for decent people to live. Well, one of Ike's mentors uh, in target practice sessions was a guy who claimed to have been a deputy to Wild Bill Hickok. Uh, it started there. Uh, he, step-by-step, uh, step committed himself to learn and master the fighting arts. He'd been interested in ancient military history as a kid, uh, and off he goes to West Point. Now, how does he reconcile his life as a soldier a warrior with the ideals of the mother whom he revered. Well, in my opinion, uh, the template formed in his mind very early. He would uh, achieve a compromise by mastering the fighting arts, but then using them to deliver his mother's fondest wish, peace, as, as the tough lawmen had brought safety and peace to Abilene, and here you have the beginning of the story of this career soldier who, as president, gave the United States eight years of uninterrupted peace. Why, I asked myself, and I think uh, you can find the glimmerings of an answer uh, in his childhood. You told us that his is really, at its heart, also a tragic love story. There were three women involved in this aspect of Ike's life, and I just want to spend a minute on each one of them and have you talk about. Uh, we we could spend a, an entire program just on this, but we well, we, we, just, we certainly could. <laughs> just we a, certainly. a bit of a capsule of of how these uh, women impacted him, and uh, the obvious one is of course Mamie. But first name is one will be new to people: Gladys Harding. The second, Mamie Dowd, whom he married and became our first lady, and the third, Kay Summersby. So a, a bit on each one of them, where they fit into his life, and ultimately how they affected how he lived his life. Well, I didn't know about Gladys Harding until in the course of preparing to write my own Ike biography. I read all the other Eisenhower biographies I could get my hands on, and it was a military historian named Carlo Deste uh, who wrote a uh, a semi-autobiographical work because it only covered Ike's career through the end of World War II. But his coverage of Ike's childhood and young adulthood were really quite remarkable. And he told the story of Gladys Harding. I'd never heard it before. But as soon as I read it, I thought to myself, oh, this is really important because she was his first love. Uh, he had an ardent crush on her in high school. The feelings were reciprocal. Uh, when he came back from West Point to Abilene in the summer of 1915, they had a passionate 
courtship. He proposed to her. She said she loved him, but she waited before committing herself to marry him. Why? Because she was a very serious musician, and she was not sure that she could uh, live the life of an army wife. Um, and she needed to take her time uh, sorting out her feelings. She left on a concert tour. Uh, Eisenhower uh, got his first orders. He was sent to Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Texas, and they were separated, and he was absolutely in emotional agony. He wanted this woman, and she wasn't committing herself, and in San Antonio, he met this cute, effervescent young woman, Mamie Dowd. One thing led to another, so they get engaged on Valentine's Day, 1916. How could Ike have known that Gladys Harding had made the decision to give it all up for him. And when she heard that he was engaged to someone else, uh, she was so heartbroken um, that her um, decision-making process went off the tracks and she said yes to a proposal she turned down uh, earlier from a man she really didn't love. Uh, according to a lot of surviving evidence, her marriage was loveless uh, the story of, of the documentation behind all of this, the love letter she received from Ike, it's a very interesting story, but I've probably talked too long about this already. But it's it's a key item because uh, Mamie Dowd uh, could have been, I'm, I'm just asking the question, I'm guessing, could have been something of an emotional consolation prize. Um, I put it this way in the book, it appears that he settled for a pleasant instead of a passionate relationship because he dated Mamie, they had fun, the relationship worked on its own terms, and he had to get over Gladys and get on with his life if she couldn't conquer indecision. Well, he paid a, a price for this. Um, anyway, uh, the marriage with Mamie succeeded quite well at first on its own terms, but then there were troubles. Uh, first of all, and most tragically in 1920, uh, when their first child, a cute little boy, Dowd Dwight Eisenhower, uh, whom Mamie uh, nicknamed Ikey, and then that devolved into baby talk and became Icky, um, the, the little boy suddenly died of scarlet fever, and both Ike and Mamie were devastated. Now, sometimes shared grief can bring uh, a man and woman closer together. Uh, according to Eisenhower descendants, that's not what happened to Ike and Mamie. They retreated into private worlds of sorrow, and things were just never quite the same. Then Ike was uh, assigned to the Panama Canal Zone. Mamie came with him, and the situation there was the, the conditions were, were just horrendous. The, the quarters they lived in, an infested, rickety house on stilts. Uh, Ike had long since learned to rough it, you know, and enjoy that sort of thing for the, the manly ruggedness of it. Mamie was, was in purgatory, and she began to consider divorce. Uh, they patched things up um, in Washington, D.C., and later in Paris. They, they mended things, had a pleasant social life together with friends. But then in the 30s, Ike was sent to the Philippines, and Mamie refused to come along. Uh, she didn't want another miserable experience in the tropics, and this time Ike was the one to consider divorce. So his marriage to Mamie uh, was a relationship in which he and she bore deep grudges against each other. There was this underlying damage. And then in World War II, he meets this former fashion model, a volunteer driver in the British Motor Transport Corps named Kay Summersby. 
Uh, now, for years, uh, there was speculation, gossip, controversy over whether or not Dwight Eisenhower and Kay Summersby had an affair. In my opinion, there is no question whatsoever that they did. Um, but whereas the controversy uh, has been the sensationalistic controversy over extramarital sex, in my opinion, the, the story was far more transcendent. Uh, far more tragic because I believe that Kay Summersby was the love of Eisenhower's life and vice versa. Um, I think when he met Kay, he had the kind of emotional experience he'd had with Gladys Harding. He'd missed out on that. Now he has a second chance, you see. Um, and he gave her up in 1945. Why? Well, I uh, engage in some speculation about that too. I'm not sure this was a conscious decision on his part, most likely unconscious, but he was the foremost war hero uh, in America from World War II. He had proven his skill as a warrior, but that was only the first half of the lifelong mission that had dawned upon him in childhood. He had to prove that he could use the fighting arts to keep the peace. Now, how could he do that? If he got a divorce from Mamie and just took life easy with Kay Summersby resting on his laurels, he couldn't. He had to go on to his destiny, the presidency. Well, a divorce in those days was fatal to presidential aspirations. He had to make this terrible all-or-nothing choice. And the evidence uh, from the years in between his wartime and presidential careers is so clear. The poor man was absolutely miserable. He was angry, frustrated, fit to be tied. Um, that's the story. He he made an excruciating sacrifice, uh, and and uh, it was playing out uh, way down deep throughout his presidential years. It's uh, an extraordinary story. So we have to move on to the uh, most important chapter of his early life, his graduation from West Point and entry into the military. Just uh, uh, again, our time's going to evolve really quickly, so I can't spend a lot of time with these interesting stories. But I was fascinated to find out from your writing that he was um, a uh, nonconformist. Is that a good word at West Point? And uh, frequently found himself in trouble there. Again, it doesn't it doesn't square with the disciplined. Uh, general and uh, president that we saw later on. So what was that all about? Oh, it was all about lots of things. Uh, he was uh, um, an independent thinker, a nonconformist. Uh, he was mischievous. He was rebellious. Uh, in part, it was rebellion against the, the uh, lofty standards of his mother. Uh, it was rebellion against the lackluster teaching methods at West Point, which bored him stiff. Uh, uh, but he had an innate uh, rebellious trait. Uh, it was part of his emotional nature, like his anger. Um, but that's what it was all about. And and he was almost constantly in trouble at West Point. It's it's a fascinating and very funny story. He just missed combat in World War One. How did this affect him? Oh, he was furious. Uh, he wanted uh, very much to get into action. Uh, he was uh, denied that opportunity. And he swore at the end of the war that he would, in his own words, uh, cut a swath uh, from then on to make up for this. Um, it was uh, an understandable feeling uh, in a trained uh, career soldier. Uh, you want to take the leadership skills that you've been taught, 
and apply those leadership skills in the mission of your profession. It's not necessarily warmongering, though some generals like uh, George Patton did become something uh, in the line of warmongers. And that wasn't the case with Ike. He had a lifelong mission to keep the peace, but he needed to use uh, those fighting arts. Uh, something of, of a contradiction, perhaps, but not really. I don't think it really was. Yours is a story of important people, especially in the military early on and later in politics, who saw something in Dwight Eisenhower and became mentors to propel him along in his success. One of those from this period is someone by the name of Brigadier General Fox Connor. You said that this man changed Ike's life. How so? Well, Fox Connor was a a brilliant man. Uh, like my friend General Carl Odell, he was uh, a historical uh, scholar as as well as a career soldier. And he became uh, a mentor for Ike uh, during the Panama Canal episode. Uh, he gave Ike uh, postgraduate instruction uh, consisting of all the things about the strategy of warfare that should have been taught at West Point but weren't. Uh, he and Ike... Uh, had a wonderful um, mentor-pupil relationship, and Fox Connor saw in Ike uh, potential uh, for the high command. A number of people in the 1920s foresaw that another world war was very likely, and Fox Connor appointed himself something of a talent scout for the next war that he knew was coming. Uh, he wanted to propel Eisenhower upward into the upper echelons of the military, and, and he did just that. And another person who impacted uh, him and, and was part of his biography throughout his military career is General Douglas MacArthur, who was yes. a, a, a appointed Army Chief of Staff in 1930. And uh, Eisenhower, you said about their, their relationship as uh, as uh, someone who worked for him, that was he was that was MacArthur, a boss so capricious that Ike was led to the brink of emotional and physical breakdown. So, how did uh, how did that Eisenhower and MacArthur relationship work both then and later on? Well, at first, uh, when MacArthur became chief of staff and uh, he selected Eisenhower to become his uh, chief staff officer, uh, Ike was dazzled. Uh, by MacArthur's grandiosity, his prestige. Uh, he was a hero in combat in World War I. He was wealthy. He was politically well-connected. Uh, and he had this charisma that, that he used uh, when people were susceptible to it to uh, dazzle people. And Eisenhower was dazzled at first, but before very long, Uh, the insufferable side of Douglas MacArthur took over. He was a fatuous egotist. Um, His his personality became more and more histrionic, more ludicrous. Uh, And when Eisenhower served under him in the Philippines, uh, MacArthur's, I mean, the the sheer um, nonsense uh, that that MacArthur generated, his his, uh, avoidance and denial of of the military duties he'd been given. He was, uh, in Eisenhower's eyes, uh, a pitiful fraud, a phony, contemptible, uh, and, but he was a tyrannical boss, and uh, by 1938, 
uh, Eisenhower you know, knew he had to get himself out of there. He could not work for this man any longer. So through networking, he uh, arranged that. Uh, now, MacArthur became another American war hero uh, during World War II. Uh, whether he deserved to be regarded as a hero is arguable from the standpoint of military history, but he continued to have this prestige, this glamour, uh, and he had presidential aspirations. So uh, after World War II, uh, the dynamics between Ike and MacArthur continued to play out uh, in Republican Party politics. That's uh, a long story, but, but during the Korean War, uh, MacArthur was given command by President Harry Truman, uh, and uh, eventually Truman fired MacArthur for mm, insubordination. MacArthur wanted to escalate the Korean War into a full-fledged war with mainland China using nuclear weapons. And Eisenhower inherited this situation when he was elected in 1952. He had to find a solution to it. He did. Uh, he forced an armistice and brought an end to that unwinnable war in 1953 and earned MacArthur's undying contempt for having done so. The third influencer, very important, especially during World War II, was the successor Army Chief of Staff, 1939 to 1945, George C. Marshall. Of the two, you uh, write that they became an important team in the coming war. Yes. Um, Marshall was a, a brilliant officer, a truly heroic individual. He was the opposite of, of MacArthur, the egomaniac. Uh, George Marshall was a man of supreme uh, self-sacrifice, self-abnegation, uh, a man of conscience, a man of duty. He would also become, under Harry Truman, remarkably, the Secretary of State, who was to give the world the Marshall Plan. Um, Marshall, like Ike, um, wanted to lead troops in combat during World War II. And he was, he was poised to do so in many ways. And when Operation Overlord was shaping up the, the uh, invasion campaign that would culminate in D-Day, many people presumed that George Marshall would be in command. And in 1943, uh, Franklin Roosevelt offered Marshall a choice. He said, uh, you can have the command of Overlord if you want it. Uh, or you can continue to be Army Chief of Staff where you are performing invaluable work. You decide. And Marshall said, Mr. President, I will do whatever you wish. And FDR said, then it will be Eisenhower. <laughs> an, uh, an amazing story. Now, why FDR chose Eisenhower is a very interesting question. I think, and I'm not alone in this, um, Eisenhower biographer Michael Corda came to the same conclusion. I think he was right. It was because FDR a very Machiavellian politician, could see a similar gift in Eisenhower, a political gift. Uh, with George Marshall, what you saw was what you got, plain truth. With Eisenhower, you had this, this shrewd ability to maneuver. FDR needed that in World War II to maintain unity within the Allied coalition, and Eisenhower delivered it. It's interesting, though. It seems like the ability to handle the politics of the coalition trumped the fact that he had never seen combat at the point that he was handed this most important operation. That's absolutely right. He had to learn on the job, so to speak, beginning with Operation Torch, the invasion of North Africa. And at first, his lack of combat experience was 
a very, very serious impediment, but he learned and he learned fast. And by the time FDR selected him as commander for Overlord, he had surpassed Marshall in in direct combat experience. Eisenhower by then had commanded uh, three uh, amphibious landings, the, the torch landings on the coast of North Africa, the Operation Husky landings in Sicily, and the uh, landings in the uh, Italian campaign in the fall of 1943, culminating in the Battle of Salerno. Uh, Ike uh, had tremendous experience within one year uh, as, as a combat zone commander. And in a chapter that you call Meteoric Rise, he found himself hammering out war strategy with George Marshall, with Franklin Roosevelt, and with Churchill. Um, A couple of questions. What was his his actual working relationship like with the two leaders, FDR and Churchill? And my second one, sorry to double team with questions here, but the army is a small place filled with lots of human beings. How were others reacting to this meteoric rise of Dwight Eisenhower? Well, as you say, very interesting interrelated questions. Uh, Eisenhower uh, deftly managed uh, the uh, political and personal interactions with Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, He learned a lot, uh, a very great deal from FDR, uh, likewise from his relationship with Churchill. Um, One of the interesting stories here is, is the evolving strategic judgment of FDR uh, in in deciding uh, the priorities for military campaigns. And and Eisenhower, at first, like Marshall, found himself uh, on the other side in policy disputes with Churchill and the British, on the other side of policy disputes with FDR. Uh, The writer Nigel Hamilton has recently argued that that FDR's uh, military judgment, his judgment as a war leader, was better than that of any of the other participants. As a Lincoln scholar, I agree with that. FDR was a magnificent wartime leader. Anyway, um, Eisenhower had to cultivate Churchill. Uh, He had to get along with him. Um, And Roosevelt uh, was was, uh, a keen observer of how well Eisenhower was uh, managing that. Uh, But again, Churchill... um, was uh, averse. He became increasingly averse to the cross-channel invasion because he and the other British leaders were increasingly nervous about the prospect of failure. FDR and Eisenhower were committed to going ahead. Uh, A long story. As to other reactions uh, to the meteoric rise of Ike within the uh, Army High Command, uh, his old friend George Patton uh, began to be resentful and jealous uh, he he concluded that that Eisenhower really didn't deserve uh, the breaks that he'd been getting. That he George Patton uh, could do a better job. Both men, Patton and Ike, had presumed that in the next war, Ike would be serving under Patton. Uh, who could have predicted that it would be quite the reverse? Uh, Douglas MacArthur, we've talked about already. George Marshall, I think, was jealous of Ike after Ike got the opportunity to use the magnificent army that Marshall had built uh, in the uh, crusade in Europe against Hitler. Uh, There were tensions between Marshall and Ike. Uh, They were a team. Uh, There was something of a master-apprentice relationship between them, Uh, but there was tension. 
Um, there's no question about that, which brings us back to the story of Case Summersby. I don't know if there's time for that. But oh, you know. well, yes, there, there is. And I even have a clip of her in just a second. But let me just All take right. a, a minute here and, and uh, tell people where we are. We're talking uh, with R- Richard Streiner, and he has a new book called Ike in Love and War. We have just a little bit more than 20 minutes left to go with him. I have, I, uh, before we get to Kay, I just want to stay with uh, Eisenhower and his leadership skills. Uh, and that is, and do that with a clip. This is the one minute and 30 second reading the order of the day on June 6, 1944 from the Eisenhower Library as uh, D-Day began. And after we listen to it, I want you to ten, spend a moment just talking about his particular leadership skills that made this day a success. Here, here we go. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the Great Crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Richard Steiner. Yes, ma'am. His leadership skills. What made it a success? Well, in assuming command of Operation Overlord, he was taking responsibility for an operation that might very well have failed. Uh, The uh, cross-channel assault upon Hitler's Atlantic Wall was a formidable challenge. It could easily have gone wrong. There were so many factors that could have... uh, Uh, spun events out of control, not least of all the weather. Uh, Ike had to make a do-or-die decision uh, in the midst of of a uh, channel uh, storm. Uh, Within uh, the few days leading up to D-Day, he had to decide whether or not to uh, believe the meteorological predictions uh, and the the skeptics, the warriors, were predicting absolute disaster. Uh, for the D-Day Armada, if Ike's judgment call proved to be wrong. Uh, He decided to take the chance to go ahead, and then he composed one of the most fascinating documents uh, of his public life, um, second only to his warning about the military-industrial complex later. Uh, On June 5th, the day before D-Day in 1944, he composed this failure message to be broadcast to the American people if the landings should be defeated and he took all the responsibility himself. Uh, that's, that's a testament to the character, to the bravery and the honor of Dwight D. Eisenhower and, and the, uh, the coldest steel um, leadership skill under pressure. Now, down below, he, he was, he was uh, uh, in emotional turmoil uh, over this. But he had been fighting emotional turmoil all his life. Um, there's, there's one of the uh, demonstrations of the leadership skill uh, that he showed in the D-Day campaign. So, Kay Summersby, the way that you portray it with evidence uh, along the way is that she really helped sustain him during these three critical years with so much stress. I have a, a clip that was from uh, Thames Television, UK, 1974, uh, just so we can see her later on in life talking about General Eisenhower. I think you always have problems, but 
General Eisenhower being the supreme Allied commander, he had this wonderful knack of getting along with people of all different nationalities. He didn't think of himself as an American, he didn't think of himself as British or French or Polish or anything. He just thought what was best for the whole Allied effort. So, in your words, what role did she play uh, with Eisenhower during these three years? Well, I believe that, uh, well, there's no question about the fact that they became deeply in love with each other. And Ike was gradually trying to come to grips with the implications uh, of this for his marriage, for uh, the rest of his life. Um, now, in her old age, Kay Summersby, uh, with assistance from some ghost writers in, in the months before she uh, died, um, uh, put together, and it was published posthumously, a book called Past Forgetting, My Love Affair with Dwight D. Eisenhower, in which uh, she produced this tell-all memoir that became the subject of immediate controversy, and it's controversial uh, ever since. I find the book credible. I'm not alone in this uh, for lots of reasons, uh, which my book explains. But she wrote the book uh, upon, she decided to write the book upon publication of another book, uh, a book about Harry Truman, a so-called oral history of Truman by a writer named Merle Miller, who interviewed Truman at length, both in taped interviews and in conversations they allegedly had between taping sessions. This book came out in 1973 after Truman's death, um, plain speaking, an oral history of Harry Truman. And, and in this book, Miller claimed that Truman claimed that just after Germany surrendered, Eisenhower sent uh, Chief of Staff General George Marshall a letter saying that he uh, wanted to uh, return to the United States, uh, be relieved of command, uh, get a divorce from Amy Eisenhower so he could marry Kay Summersby. And uh, uh, according to uh, Merle Miller, uh, according to Harry Truman, George Marshall sent Eisenhower this scathing, almost unprintable reply, telling him, uh, I'm tempted to use some off-color language myself, uh, the, the letter almost, almost scorched, you know, with fiery indignation. You know, he said, if you do that, I will hound you out of the army. I will make the rest of your life a living hell. Don't you dare do anything like that. So on. And then Truman allegedly said, the last thing I did as president, I got those letters from Eisenhower's file in the Pentagon and I destroyed them. And when Plain Speaking was published, Kay Summersby was stunned. Uh, she had always wondered, so she said, uh, whether Ike had, had even thought of uh, spending the rest of his life with her, marrying her. And, and now she decided, well, that clinches that I'm going to go public and tell my story because Ike was the love of my life uh, and and uh, I don't have much longer to go. I, I have to tell the story for history, uh, for my own, you know, solace and satisfaction shows she wrote her book, Past Forgetting. Um, so the controversy among the historians and others uh, about the veracity 
of uh, plain speaking and past forgetting has has just rolled down the decades. Uh, I have come to the conclusion both accounts are are probably quite true. Uh, there were a number of, of confirmations. Uh, Major General Harry Vaughn, Truman's military aide, said in an interview with Associated Press in the 1970s, oh, yes, the exchange of letters was, was uh, quite factual. I saw them. Uh, I brought them uh, to Truman in the Oval Office. And then in 1996 at the Truman Library, uh, a man named John Steelman, who was an aide to Truman and became his chief of staff in 1946, was uh, interviewed by a historian named Niels Johnson, and he was asked uh, about the uh, Eisenhower Marshall letters. He said, oh, yes, uh, I saw them. Uh, as soon as Marshall received the letter, he called me and he said, you make me an appointment with President Truman immediately, and I want you to sit in as a witness. Uh, it's right there. You can access it online. According to uh, Steelman, uh, Marshall said essentially what Merle Miller said, Harry Truman said, he said, <laughs> uh, I believe that all happened. What happened to the letters, uh, God only knows. Uh, uh, allegedly, Truman sent them off to Marshall saying these belong in your private files, not in a Pentagon file where they can be used for dirty politics. Uh, if Marshall did receive them, uh, quite possibly he destroyed them uh, or not. Uh, you know, they they may surface uh, decades later. It's it's a very interesting story. Now, I could be wrong, but I don't think so. I'm not saying I can prove it. I just think it because of the sheer weight of evidence. And the whole thing makes perfect sense from the standpoint of Ike's emotional development for lots of reasons, not least of all the light that it sheds upon the very strange behavior of Eisenhower in the late 1940s between the war and his presidency. If if we presume the case Summers B was telling the truth, Ike's behavior makes a lot more sense. At least that's what I think. And we'll leave it to readers to find some of the stories that came out of that period. This leaves us, unfortunately, with about 10 minutes to talk about a two-term and very important presidency. So let me just uh, hit a couple high points. Uh, first of all, after the war ended, Harry Truman on the one side um, and uh, Tom Dewey on the other side were both romancing Eisenhower to get into politics, which he demurred until 1951. How ultimately did he decide he was a Republican? Well, that's a very interesting question. And I don't know uh, the answer for sure. Uh, in my opinion, uh, he'd had a foot in both camps, both in terms of, of partisan loyalties and uh, ideological proclivities. He was a Democrat, Eisenhower, in high school. Uh, he was glad when Franklin Roosevelt beat Hoover in 1932. Uh, he had certain uh, conservative uh, notions that needed to be developed and explored. On the other hand, uh, he had the potentiality to be quite liberal in a number of senses. Uh, he really was instinctively a centrist, and that played out eventually through the middle way policies that he developed as president. But finally, what it took was the action of others. It's a very interesting story. Uh, William Robinson, Thomas Dewey, General Lucius Clay, uh, these people were, were the, uh, the kingmakers, the, the, uh, the naggers, the goaders who kept pushing Ike in 51. Uh, and he was fighting, you know, uh, he had to be dragged kicking and screaming to uh, the time of his life, because once he decided uh, to uh, commit 
and seek the presidency, uh, he uh, uh, found out in real life what he would probably have known instinctively for a long time. He was a natural politician. He was born to play the political game. FDR saw this. So many people saw this. Uh, and his presidency uh, is the next topic I suppose we're going to talk about. Yes? Yes, it is, but with, with short time. So there's so much, again, uh, race relations, the interstate highway system, his expansion of the social welfare policy. But I want to really spend just a few minutes on that issue that we started out with that really framed his presidency, the Cold War, relations with Russia, and uh, America's atomic policy. What legacy did he leave us with in this area? Well, he left us with the uh, frightening and tragic, but I, I think inescapable legacy of, of uh, nuclear deterrence, uh, which, though frightening, and in the view of some people in the 1950s, 60s, you know, watch the film Dr. Strangelove, <laughs> quite insane. Uh, but what alternative was there to it? The, the, you know, the nuclear secret could not be uninvented. Uh, the technology was out there, the weapons existed. Uh, what do you do about it? Uh, Eisenhower crafted this this uh, strategic architecture of deterrence. Um, but uh, one of the most interesting books about Ike in recent years was Evan Thomas's book, Ike's Bluff, uh, in which he, he delved into evidence, particularly from the minutes of National Security Council meetings, showing that Eisenhower uh, played a deliberate game of bluff to, to make people wonder whether he really was prepared to push the nuclear button. Uh, in Thomas's opinion, it was all the bluffing of a poker player. I'm convinced that's quite right. Uh, but that, too, is a fascinating story. So much of, of the hidden, deceptive, uh, brilliantly strategic uh, work of Eisenhower as president, developing the capacity for space-based surveillance to tell him exactly what the capabilities of the Soviets were. He didn't want to guess. He wanted to know. Uh, things like that. One of the uh, flaws of his leadership style was his aversion to fire people who didn't serve him well. Uh, again, this is a, a, can be a very complex story, but uh, why do you, where do you think that came from, and, and how really did it impact the success of his presidency? Well, where it came from is, is hard to say. I have my own theories about it. Of course, I'm speaking principally of the Dulles brothers, John Foster Dulles and his brother Alan Dulles, uh, who was director of the CIA. Uh, I and many others feel that Alan Dulles was a woefully incompetent and really quite dangerous uh, person to put in charge of, of national intelligence. John Foster Douglas was another story. He was useful to Ike in this game of nuclear bluff. He was useful to placate the Republican far right, uh, especially Joe McCarthy. Ike had his strategic reasons for keeping them, but both of the Dulles brothers had to be managed. And at their worst, they could be quite dangerous, uh, quite reckless. Uh, John Foster Dulles showed that in the Suez crisis in 1956. I think by then he should have been dismissed. Alan Dulles should have been dismissed uh, long before. Why was Ike so averse to firing anyone? Uh, I don't know, but I, I think the uh, psychology may be connectable, however far-fetched this might sound, to, to his emotional relationship with, with others. You know, the, the, the loyalty um, to his marriage, 
the pain of, of terminating that relationship with Case Summersby. Didn't like that experience, to put it mildly. Didn't want to go through anything like that again. Maybe. I'm just guessing. Uh, maybe that's why it was. But it was a weakness, certainly. Uh, he, uh, he, he should have. Uh, shuffled the deck and and uh, got rid of certain people who were not serving him well. Another of those people he seemed like he wanted to fire uh, would have been Richard Nixon in the second campaign. How did he handle that? Well, he he uh, handled it through avoidance. Um, uh, that's that's a very strange story. Uh, I mean, Nixon was kind of uh, foisted onto Eisenhower in the '52 campaign for political reasons within the Republican Party. Eisenhower thought of dumping Nixon in 1956, but he chose to engage in avoidance and wishful thinking. Uh, yes, I, I think he should. it would have been perfectly simple to tell Nixon, look, I think the world of you, you're a great guy, uh, but politics being what it is, I need someone whose politics are slightly different. Uh, no hard feelings, I hope. Uh, he could have done it. He could have done it easily. He didn't. Uh, he should have. We have about five minutes left, and uh, Dwight Eisenhower, C-SPAN does over the past 20 years these periodic historian surveys of presidential leadership. For the past two times, Dwight Eisenhower has come in fifth place in leadership rankings, and you describe him as a masterful president. Make the case for that. Well, for all the reasons we've been discussing, uh, he was uh, an extraordinarily capable leader, uh, he did the American people a world of good, not least of all, in, in bringing about uh, a well-grounded age of good feelings. The nation was in a state of near hysteria in 1952. Uh, the Joe McCarthy phenomenon eerily anticipated the Donald Trump phenomenon. The connection is quite direct uh, because one of Joe McCarthy's henchmen, Roy Cohen, would be a mentor to Trump later on. Uh, Eisenhower uh, sought deliberately to isolate McCarthy, to calm the nation down, to to uh, bring healing and reconciliation. Something similar to what Joe Biden is trying to do right now, but the circumstances right now are less conducive uh, to success than they were under Ike. I generally avoid these these you know uh, superlative rating games, although I am quick to rate Abraham Lincoln. Uh, number one in a class by himself. Uh, Eisenhower, way, way up there. Uh, every person is unique. Every leader is unique. Uh, so is Ike. Uh, but I have developed the highest admiration for him. He was a remarkable leader uh, whose policies, whose achievements uh, have a great deal to offer us uh, right now in the way of uh, guidance. Well, speak to that, because as you note, the age of good feelings that he worked so hard to create for America in that tumultuous time was short-lived, and the middle way has clearly unraveled in this country in politics. So what ultimately is his legacy? Well, his legacy was to do his utmost uh, while he lived in the years uh, when he did have the power to do good, uh, to bring to the American people and the world uh, the best achievable outcomes in some very, very dangerous years. Uh, nothing lasts. Anything can go bad. 
in my epilogue, I offer the observation that here is another lesson from Ike, because no matter what we achieve, it will deteriorate, things will go wrong, and new servants of the people will have to arise, uh, meet the challenge, and do their best to put right what has gone wrong. And uh, to measure up to the achievements of Ike uh, should be uh, inspiration uh, in the years to come. That's what I think. Richard Streiner's new book is called Ike in Love and War. And uh, I want to thank you for spending an hour with us talking about the life and accomplishments of Dwight D. Eisenhower. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Remember, if you subscribe to this podcast, you'll never miss an episode. And I'd really like to hear from you about our interviews. You can email me at podcasts, that's podcast with an S, at c-span.org. Your feedback is welcome.